2: is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. In January, education advocates and state officials gathered in Hartford to announce a settlement 26 years after the Connecticut Supreme Court's landmark decision in Chef V. O'Neill. Now, if the legislature allows this agreement to move forward, the state will be on the hook to spend millions more in the coming years so that every Hartford student who wants a seat in a magnet, vocational, or suburban school is offered enrollment. State officials estimate that's 3,000 students. But this settlement is the sixth agreement since the case was first filed in 1989. How can Connecticut really desegregate schools statewide and encourage more towns to participate in open choice? The Darien School District is just one recent example of its board voting not to accept elementary kids from neighboring Norwalk. Coming up where we live, we hear from one of the original chef attorneys, John Britton, and we talk to a parent who says opening more seats in suburban school districts overlooks the social harm caused by sending children of color to schools outside of their communities. You can join our conversation, 888 720 9677. That's 888 720 WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, a Connecticut Public Investigative Reporter. Jackie, welcome back to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
2: You've covered uh, this story uh, for many years. And when this uh, settlement was announced, it was called historic. But as I mentioned, it's the sixth agreement to come out of this case. So can you give us some context to this new agreement? What has changed?
3: Yeah, I think what really makes this a historic agreement is that every student who applies to enter into an integrated school, a magnet school, open choice, um, will be offered that opportunity. Um, And so that's the first time such a promise has been made um, to meet the demand um, Many people might not choose to take the state up on that offer, um, but the state has committed to reaching that that goal of every student who applies for an integrated magnet school or open choice will be given that opportunity. Um, I think over the years, um, this also shows a financial commitment um, moving forward you know, next year this agreement will spend an additional $26 million um, on increased reimbursements for um, things like starting with like extracurriculars and some magnet schools to make them more attractive. Um, for students to attend. There are some magnet schools in Hartford that have really struggled um, and in the suburban areas. I shouldn't just say Hartford. Um, There are magnet schools um, in the region that have really struggled to attract students. Um, And so there's money to really rethink those schools and really make them um, an opportunity for, with an investment.
2: When you talk about demand, Jackie, you know, how many Hartford students were turned away from attending a magnet or open choice school in the past?
3: Yeah. So if you look at historic trends, about 3,300 students every year were being turned away that had asked for enrollment in one of these schools of choice and were not given that opportunity. Um, this commitment is this the settlement, if if approved by the legislature, will actually um, meet that demand, whatever it may be in the coming years. And so um, right now, the estimate is that that's about 3,300 students.
2: Hmm. When we think about what was at the heart of the CHEF case, you know, how to end racial segregation and educational inequality, can you talk about when we think about moving forward, we know that this will benefit Hartford students who've wanted to get an education outside their neighborhood school, but how does CHEF affect segregation statewide, Jackie?
3: Yeah, so, you know, CHEF was was a state Supreme Court decision about the impact that racial and socioeconomic um, isolation has on communities and on schools specifically, Um, but it was only carried out for the Hartford region. And so what you see is that in other parts of the state, you know, Waterbury, New Haven, um, Bridgeport, New Britain, you see that they haven't been given this same sort of portfolio of choice schools. Um, And with that, the money that comes with that. Um, You mentioned that, you know, Hartford students would benefit. I think there is a little bit of... um, a difference of opinion on that point. Um, some people feel that the chef schools have not um, really benefited everyone equally. Um, and I think that speaks to a lot of people not winning the lottery year after year. And this settlement aims to remediate that so that that's not an issue going forward. Um, but then there's also issues of, um, you know, students and the, the culture that they they are enrolled in when they go to open choice schools in the suburbs. And again, I think um, one of the goals, if you read in, read the settlement, one of the goals with the open choice program is to make it so that um, Hartford students aren't only 1% of the students in the school, um, that it's really to entice the suburban districts who have drastically declining school age population to take in more students. So it's a more inclusive environment
2: when we talk about open choice and magnet schools. So there's, I guess, two levers here, right? So can you talk through, um, you know, again, getting more suburban schools to either open these spots or even attract some of the suburban students to these magnet schools that have been created within the Hartford region, Jackie?
3: Yeah, so the state, depending on what part of the state you're talking about, um, the financial incentives differ. But generally speaking, it's between about $3,000 and $11,000 for students um, in the Open Choice program. And what that does is um, is sort of a, hey, we'll cover whatever potential cost this might have for enrolling more students um, from nearby areas. Um, But... But really what you see is that a lot of municipalities have not participated in that as their enrollment declines in in their resident students, the number of resident students attending their schools. There hasn't been a reciprocal increase in them opening their doors to um, the overcrowded school, urban schools next door. Um, A lot of our urban centers have seen really increased numbers of students enrolled. And I think that speaks to housing Developments in communities—you um, know—more people are moving to those communities. Um, they're attracting more people, um, but you have it. But the schools haven't really kept pace with the capacity.
2: So, what are some reasons why these suburban districts uh, aren't opening these spots? They understand the state's going to be increasing the financial incentives, uh, so that these schools are offering more open choice. Uh, what are you hearing, Jackie?
3: So. I've done an iteration of this story a few times about sort of what, why, just why the suburban numbers haven't increased over the years. Uh, most recently I did one about Darien, um, Darien rejected a plan that would have allowed, I believe it was 16 students, um, from Norwalk into their district. That's about, um, one student per classroom in that, in kindergarten classroom in that district. And, um, what I heard from from folks who were opposed to opening their doors um, to those students were things like, we have projected increased enrollment because more housing is being developed in this community. But then when you dive into the numbers, it doesn't really play out. There are only one bedroom apartments that are opening in the community. So that doesn't bring kids to your community. Um, And that doesn't take into effect the the decrease in enrollment that you've been having in your district as well. There's also concern about fiscal costs that are really impacting, uh, that you're maybe not getting reimbursed for enough of the cost. Um, I think really what this comes down to on the fiscal front is, and, and some of the pushback that you're seeing in Hartford is that Um, It's really about money. Right. Uh, I feel like a lot of legislators have communicated that um, one of the potential solutions could be to spend more money in these communities, into urban centers and make them sort of the token where people want to attract. You know, you want to draw in people. Um, And a lot of the chef's agreement, it does have that as a model. Um, but but again, some schools have struggled to attract suburban schools. And so there's a huge investment in the settlement that that seeks to pour more money into those schools that ha- just, just haven't been able to attract enough students from the suburbs. Um, and I, I think that really is what it comes down to. Um, I should mention that, you know, there is a legal um, sort of thing that's sort of hovering over all of this, right? There's a, a court decision that says Hartford that the state must do this Um, if we're talking about this being a fiscal issue um, you can look at Bridgeport you can look at New Britain Um, they're they're two of um, the lowest per pupil spending districts in the state Um, and they're not under any sort of court oversight court agreement that requires more money, drastic increases in, in spending be funneled to those districts. Um, there was a school funding lawsuit, and and the plaintiffs lost that lawsuit um, that would have potentially sent more money to those urban districts. And so um, this is really the avenue um, potentially for increasing more money. You know, the legislature has the ability. If, if the if the decision is that, or there, there's sort of a, a chorus of folks who are saying, like, we just need more money um, to make the urban centers um, and their schools attractive places to send your students, um, the legislature has that ability to do that and has for the last 26 years. Um, and they and they haven't done that, um, According, if, if you go off of the opinion of, of the folks who say that we need to pour mon- more money into the, the schools
2: hearing Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas here on Where We Live. She's an investigative reporter at Connecticut Public as we talk about this new agreement reached in the V. O'Neill case to desegregate schools and expand Connecticut's open choice program. That original decision by the Connecticut Supreme Court was handed down 26 years ago. We wanted to get more perspective on how Chef is being viewed uh, statewide from different communities. Joining us now uh, on Zoom is Althea Marshall-Brooks, executive director of Waterbury Bridge to Success. And she's also the mother of a child in public school. Althea, welcome to our show.
0: Um, Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me.
2: And we've been hearing from Jackie about Chef and the importance of educational equity for all students and some of the uh, strategies that have been uh, followed by the state uh, over the years. So tell us about your work on, on educational equity with Waterbury Bridge to Success and how you work with the Waterbury public school system.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Lucy. Um, Waterbury Bridge to Success was established um, in 2010 um, as the state's first cradle to career initiative. Um, In Waterbury, when the organization um, was established, it was a result of a number of youth serving organizations coming together saying, we're seeing each other in all these different meetings. Let's find a way to work more collaboratively, right, and have more of a collective impact. And BTS Bridge to Success was was established. So um, the belief is, and the mission is, in order for Waterbury's children, youth, and families to be successful in school, career, and life, um, Bridge to Success seeks to facilitate the dismantling of the policies, the practices, and beliefs um, that have historically disenfranchised um, all stakeholders um, to co-create sustainable, equitable systems that support Black, Indigenous, people of color, BIPOC communities from cradle um, to career.
2: So talk about some of those barriers and the work that's being done, again, within your organization, within the Waterbury community, because so much of when we talk about uh, CHEF is a focus on the Hartford region and the schools and the students' um, achievement. But I'm I'm curious if you could talk more about when we think about the barriers uh, within communities uh, to help children succeed, but also to be conscious of, you know, what's happening in their communities. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk more about
0: that. I sure can. I, uh, If I can reference back to Jackie uh, mentioning a number of uh, communities that are doing similar work. So we have uh, recently established a C- Connecticut Cradle to Career Partnership, which includes um, three other organizations doing cradle to career work in partnership with a national initiative, Strive Together, um, for every child to succeed uh, from cradle to career. And Those other entities are Bridgeport Prospers, Norwalk Acts, and Stanford Cradle to Career. And as a part of that national network, there's nearly 70 communities across the country um, who are part of a national movement with the purpose of helping every child succeed in school um, and regardless of their race, ethnicity, zip code, or circumstance. And those are a few of the barriers. And the goal is that we refuse to settle for a world where a child's potential is dictated by the conditions in which um, they are born. So we all work together to break down the barriers you're talking about with systems change being our focus and ultimately um, improving lives. Mm-hmm. So and- the work that we do um, is based on our core values, Lucy, accountable relationships, centering the BIPOC youth and family uh, families, um, community healing and joy, um, community-led collabor- uh, collaborative action, and then most importantly, um, our racial equity work. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. that's how we approach some of the issues.
2: I understand you're also doing work with My Reflection Matters, which is a Waterbury-based consulting service that helps parents and educators find culturally affirming classroom material. Uh, this was led by Chime Morales James. And so, talk about that partnership when we think about um, you know the root causes of why segregation persists in our state, and you know how we talk about this uh, with our children.
0: Yeah, so in uh, 2017, when I came to Bridge to Success, Waterbury is my hometown, born and raised there. All my family's there, so it's still very much home to me. Um, Had the opportunity, uh, the framework that drives cradle-to-career initiatives is collective impact. Um, That framework, one key piece of that is that it's data-driven, and all decisions are made based on data. And the community collects data on uh, the developmental assets of of youth. And it's uh, an assessment tool that's utilized by youth-serving organizations. And one of the things that was just glaring to me when I looked at that report, um, when I took the position, was that Black and Brown, when I say Brown, I mean Latinx and Hispanic children were just not feeling affirmed, were not feeling seen. Um, in their community. And um, at that time, uh, the decision was made that in order for us to really do this work, we had to center racial equity. It was what we had to do in order to really get the outcomes that we wanted. And the the blessing of that was we had uh, Ms. uh, Chimay Morales-James, who was a part of the Bridge to Success team at that time um, and had recently established um, an organization called My Reflection Matters. And so having Chime, um, who is a social liberation edgivist, which is an education activist, um, her focus and work was really about a mission to provide the tools necessary to support and uh, nurture the development of healthy racial and ethnic identities of black and brown children and older youth. And so that's where the work um, started. And then from there, the conversations began with parents and caregivers in our community about what was going on with their children and. Um, from those community conversations the let's talk about race family guide was was birthed
2: mm. so tell me more about that guide and you know how you're gonna be working with districts on this because this is also a guide for families it is um
0: what we see in our work really um Lucy it's about really shifting power um having the voice of the lived experience at the table is critical we're going to really change systems and dismantle policies and practice that continue to disenfranchise and marginalize um, communities of color we have to really get the voice of the lived, lived experience and parents and youth to the table and that's what we've done um, but the work i have to say i'm really excited about uh, outside of that we have over 90 active partners our work with waterbury public schools has has really grown over the last um, five years and so the guide has really um, moved into not only um, dialogue with parents and caregivers Um, about how to raise them with uh, affirming identities, but working very closely with the district um, around uh, our Black Education Matters initiative, doing work with them um, through teacher orientations and deepening practices around race and education, Um, our deep engagement with them and post-secondary institutions around hashtag raise the rate um, through FAFSA completions and college and career pathways partnerships. So we're using the guide in that way to really inform strategies that really lift um, and allow for the voice of black and brown youth to be heard.
2: And which other districts are you working with on this, Althea?
0: We're specifically working with Waterbury Public Schools at this time
2: you hearing Althea Marshall-Brooks here on Where We Live, Executive Director of Waterbury Bridge to Success. Also with us, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, Connecticut Public's investigative reporter. As we talk about educational equity in the context of this latest agreement in the Chef V. O'Neill school desegregation case, as we heard, the state has pledged millions over the next decade to open nearly 3,000 additional seats in desegregated magnet, vocational, and suburban neighborhood schools. But what does that mean for the state in the long term? More after that On a sh- after a short break. You can join us too 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. More than two decades ago, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled in favor of plaintiffs representing Hartford school children, the court saying they suffered from racial and economic inequities, and this segregation violated the state constitution. So policymakers were left to come up with a solution. Their solution in the v. O'Neill case was building new magnet schools and permitting youth to attend suburban neighborhood schools. Now, a sixth agreement has been reached, and if the state fulfills its obligations, it could be rid of court oversight in 10 years. But not everyone is pleased with this latest agreement, and other questions remain. How can Connecticut desegregate schools statewide and encourage more suburban towns to participate in the voluntary open choice program? Coming up, we're going to hear from one of the original chef attorneys, John Britton, with us Now on Zoom is Althea Marshall-Brooks, Executive Director of Waterbury Bridge to Success, and Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, Connecticut Public's investigative reporter. Althea, I wanted to go back to you. I wanted to hear what your response is to CHEF and this latest agreement. I understand that, as you mentioned, you grew up in Waterbury and you're a parent of a public school child.
0: Um, I am excited and applaud um, the landmark case. Um, but this is just the beginning. I know it seemed, that might seem odd in that it's been what, 33 years, uh, Lucy, um, since the case um, first came forth. Uh, but the goal is really to move from, you know, the changes in the system to really transforming the system. And at this point, it's the responsibility of all of us, right, to ensure that our schools are not only equitable equitable and accessibility, um, but also culturally responsive to the needs of the Black and Brown students who will Benefit from, um, if I can uh, use that word, of the open choice options that this will provide for kids in Hartford.
2: Talk more about, again, your point about making sure this is culturally responsive as well, because for so long, does it seem like these agreements look at the economic solutions versus the social, Althea? Um,
0: So I'm putting on my mom hat now. As a mother of a child who was in public school and uh, uh, I guess I could say a beneficiary of open choice. Um, I, I think the opportunities uh, that the accessibility provides are great. We chose uh, open choice as an option for us or what we pursued because our son's community was in this, in this particular suburban community where he is um, in school because that's where he went to preschool. So it made sense for us to take advantage of the opportunity for him to, to remain there. Um, But to Jackie's point, um, the culture in many of these open choice settings um, might provide the physical space for them, but the concern around the social emotional well-being of these children and their safety as it relates to that is something that Chef um, is the next step Chef needs to go to, ensuring that these districts understand um, the 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 need for children of color, one, to be reflected in the buildings. When we think about curriculum, when we think about the fact, if I can be frank, Lucy, some of these communities don't want black and brown children um, in their schools. Um, My son has personally experienced some of that. um, And um, the reality is, you know, it harkens back, right, to cute little Ruby Bridges making her way into a school where a community of people did not want her there. And in that same way, many of these communities are saying that when they're rejecting the opportunity to work with um, their their neighbors next door who are more urban um, oriented as far as the makeup and more diverse racially and uh, ethnically. So I think we have to look at that. I think, um, Chef, this this agreement is the first step, but we got a a, a bit more to go. Even when we think about the makeup of uh, the educators in the building, and again, the curriculum, Um, uh, access to information about uh, uh, who the community is and their, their willingness and receptiveness. Um, can really be, it needs to be something that needs to focus in on um, for these communities involved in open choice.
2: Althea, you shared a little bit about um, your, you and your child's decision of the school that your child attends. And can you talk more about when we think about, again, being culturally responsive and what you were looking for more from your child's school district and, you know, where there have been some gaps?
0: I think the reality is if you're changing, many of these uh, suburban school districts, um, it's, it has not been uncommon in the seven years my son has been in a school where he's been the only um, child of color in his class, um, and it can be an issue when a teacher says they're colorblind because his color adds value um, to that space, so the need to ensure on both sides of the desk and um, that there is the necessary training, professional development, and unpacking of issues around race and education. It's been a historic issue. Um, And we haven't worked through all of that. Um, I'm sure you're very well aware of many of the incidents when suburban and urban schools come together and and, uh, racial and derogatory statements are made. We have to go beyond the tokenism of open choice and really get to and ensure that um, the work around the issues of race and racism are addressed. Kids are going into these very homogeneous, monolithic kind of communities where there's a one thought process. And in some cases, kids that look like my son are not a part of the fabric. So what do you do when that child is introduced to a community like that? And I think there has to be done work done on both sides of the desk, as well as within the system. Um, It doesn't mean, you know, I'm I'm sitting here and indicting um, suburban districts. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is the work needs to be done. Integration and um, uh, equitable access is the, the first step but doing the additional work is necessary for everybody's well-being.
2: Before I go back to Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas to hear what um, she has been also hearing from parents about a chef and uh, the experiences of their children, uh, I wanted to ask you, Althea, as a Waterbury native, when you were growing up and what your school experience was like, how did that? How does that inform your work today? Oh, um, that brings a smile to my face. Um, when I was growing up in Waterbury, my
0: my my, my village was filled with um, images and individuals and role models um, and many facets it, you know when I think of the number of teachers that look like me um, from elementary school you know mr Franklin my my elementary school principal um, when I think of, you know, Miss Gilliam, my social studies teacher, Mr. Brown, who was another uh, social studies teacher, Mr. McKinney, the Mr. and Mrs. Head. Um, my, when I think even middle school, all my uh, PE teachers were all African American Black folk. So I, I came from a village where I saw the possibilities of who I could be. Um, and there was an intentionality, if you were harken back to some time ago, where efforts were made by schools in the North to. Um, uh, draw individuals graduating from historically black colleges and universities to come north and be a part of of the school system. And I benefited from that. Um, Even as far as when I think back to um, preschool, Muriel Moore um, being one, Barbara Riddick, these are individuals and icons who um, left uh, an indelible mark on me as an individual, which helps to make me realize and give me the hope that, you know, that reality can be um, for children and youth in the city of Waterbury. Again, we have to restore the village. Um, you know, my community shaped me. It cultivated the leader that I am. Um, and the possibilities of it um, exist because there's other leaders that are are emerging in the city um, that can help to recreate that um, um, for the city of Waterbury. And a lot of that is happening. And I applaud the work of Dr. Verna Ruffin um, and seeing um, that representation reflected in the leadership um, um, in the schools and those uh, creating those opportunities for um, a diverse representation of leadership um, from central office to to the school buildings.
2: And you're mentioning the superintendent, is that? Dr.
0: Yes, Dr. Verna Ruffin.
2: Thank you. Uh, You're hearing Althea Marshall-Brooks, Executive Director of Waterbury Bridge to Success. Uh, Jacqueline (laughs) Rabe-Thomas is still with us, Connecticut Public's investigative reporter. Jackie, can you respond to what Althea shared? You know, it's more than just, when we think about the legacy of Chef, more than just providing uh, a seat in a classroom, uh, but the importance of uh, being culturally responsive. And then what happens to the people that are left in these communities when so much investment is being sent uh, outside um, their neighborhood schools. Can you talk about that?
3: Yeah. Um, I, you know, how I've how it's been sort of said to me is, and it was raised during a public hearing on Friday, is that, um, you know, there's nothing magical that happens when a white student sits next to a black st- student or vice versa. Um, you know, that proximity isn't necessarily, you, you know, the end all be all. Um, but what The impact is, is that unfortunately in our country that um, race transcends wealth. And so, um, so often how schools are paid for in our state are through property taxes. And so when you're talking about having enough money to um, pay for the extra supports that are needed in that classroom, um, you're relying on a system that um, is just not... Um, adequate to to fund the level of supports that are needed. The way that schools are funded in the state of Connecticut um, is that, you know, a number's sort of picked out $11,520 is sort of the foundation level that um, the state pays per student, and then it adjusts for that. But that $11,520 isn't based on anything. It's not based on sort of what are the students' needs. Um, how much does it cost to get students what they need? And so um, the way that schools are funded, I think um, folks have been making the argument for years that um, it's not really based on the needs of students. And to your question about sort of where that leaves school districts is they have um and a, a, a lot of need in their districts and it's concentrated um, in certain districts, concentrated poverty in certain districts. And so the need is not being measured in how schools are funded Um, and so where that leaves school districts is they're they're really itching for every dollar that they get in the door Um, hartford public schools for example they did an analysis on just how much chef will impact their school district and um, they estimate to lose about two million dollars some years it's about one million dollars and other years it's um, two million dollars Um, And they're really, really concerned about that. Um, But if you put it into context, Hartford Public Schools budget is $425 million. So we're talking about a quarter of a percentage um, that Hartford Public Schools stands to lose. as they are anticipating having more students um, leave their school district. Um, But those figures, I should say, are not in anticipation of more students coming into their district, which the CHEF plan does call for. Um, And so, or does anticipate that more students will attend Hartford Public Schools magnet programs. About half the pro, uh, uh, sorry, about half the magnet schools in the CHEF portfolio are in the Hartford public school system. And so again, historically, some of those schools have struggled to attract suburban students, um, as well as some of the crack in the in the region have have struggled to attract students. Um, But where that leaves Hartford is sort of this um, uncertain level of just how much funding will go into their districts, where even a quarter of a percentage loss is a big deal for that district. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point about sort of inclusive environments, um, the CHEF agreement does include for sort of seed money to, to help some of the suburban districts do that work, about a hundred districts that take the state up on the offer for open choice. They have about $150,000 to really do some of that work. Um, There's also going to be in the chef agreement. It requires for districts to measure, um, work towards attracting teachers of color, um, as well as access to high level courses, you know, um, you can attend one of the best schools, but if you're not being allowed to enroll in the advanced placement courses or the international baccalaureate classes, then how equitable is that really? And so the state, um, this agreement calls to start measuring things like that, as well as fund for after school programs, um, so that Um, They are attractive and they do have bus rides home so a guaranteed bus ride home so they are able to participate in those programs and not sort of have to leave the second that the school bell rings.
2: You mentioned, Jackie, that legislature's education uh, meeting uh, the other week. I know, I believe the co-chair, Senator Doug McCrory, uh, one of the Hartford lawmakers, voicing their concerns about uh, CHEF. And, you know, again, no investment uh, in urban renewal and revival when we think about uh, how this uh, plan will move forward. And so the legislature, I believe, has a couple of weeks to decide if they will reject this agreement. I mean, what are you hearing? Is this going to be moving forward?
3: So during friday's hearing um there were a few legislators who did um, raise some concerns primarily senator doug mccroy who represents hartford he's also the co-chair of the education committee Um, he feels like these decisions are being done in backroom deals um, which is inherently sort of how Negotiations happen right, um, but I should say that there were two public hearings in Hartford, um, and the superintendent of Hartford was involved in the negotiations, um, and there was the. The district or not the district, but the Hartford city government, their um, attorney signed off on this agreement as well. And so, um, but there is lack of, there is some concern sort of mounting in the legislature of how much authority are we ceding to these agreements versus us sort of making the policy decisions. And so to your question of whether or not this will be um, moving forward, um, the state has just over, or the legislature rather has just over two weeks to make that call, whether or not this will be moving forward Um, if they do nothing if they don't bring it up for a vote. They will not be. Um, then it will move forward. But if they bring it up for a vote, um, then it it has the real likelihood of of facing pushback because several legislators from other parts of the state are saying, "Hey, you're sending twenty six million dollars more to Hartford. What about Bridgeport? What about New Britain? What about Waterbury? Um, you know, the state school funding formula, while it does have a, you know." Some some increases headed their way, nothing to the tune of twenty six million dollars next year like Hartford's going to get. And so I think there is some some other some concern from other Democratic legislators the the ledger legislatures um, controlled by de- the Democratic Party. Uh, but really, it's it's up to whether or not it gets brought up for a vote. The Speaker of the House is from Hartford, and he um Connecticut Public reached out to him several times last week, and he was um, he said he will not be making a statement about the agreement, whether he supports it um, or whether he'll be bringing it to the floor for a vote until it until he makes that decision.
2: That's Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, an investigative reporter with Connecticut Public. Thank you, Jackie, for your time today on the show. Thanks for having me. Also here with us was Althea Marshall-Brooks, Executive Director of Waterbury Bridge to Success. Uh, More information on our website uh, about Althea's, uh, her organization's Let's Talk About Race, a Family Guide for Raising Kids with Positive Racial and Ethnic Identities. Althea, it was a pleasure to hear from you too. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Coming up, we talk to John Britton, one of the original attorneys in the Chef V. O'Neill case. How can Connecticut desegregate schools statewide and encourage more suburban towns to participate in the voluntary Open Choice program? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We've been talking about the latest agreement in the Chef V. O'Neill case. Joining us now on the phone is attorney and professor John Britton. He's a professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law. And he was one of the original attorneys in the Hartford Chef V. O'Neill lawsuit. John, welcome to our show. Good morning. Now, we heard from Connecticut Public's investigative reporter Jacqueline Rabe Thomas about why this chef decision resonates beyond Hartford. So, can you touch on this broader context and what's your take on this latest agreement?
1: First, the chef versus O'Neill case was a decision decided by the United States Supreme Court, excuse me, by the Connecticut Supreme Court. That the connecticut state constitution was violated by the extreme racial segregation between predominantly black latinx and low-income schools in hartford and their surrounding area that was what you might call the venue of this suit originally the organization that formed to look at segregation in education in connecticut wanted us to bring the case in Bridgeport. As we know, the three largest urban centers in the state are Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport. Lawyers, nevertheless, begged the group to join in suing in Hartford, the capital, and it was also convenient for the legal team. That's why we brought the case in Hartford. In addition, the Hartford and broader area factors, looking at Hartford, Simsbury, Farmington, Bloomfield, Windsor, provided a much better factual case, although it applies to the greater New Haven, the greater Bridgeport, too. And now that the parties the state of Connecticut, the Department of Education, the Attorney General, the governor, and the plaintiffs in the chef case have agreed to a settlement. And as the uh, discussion took place before I came on the mic, it now must be approved by the Connecticut legislature. Mm -hmm. So in short, the law does apply all over the state of Connecticut. However, in order to implement it, With litigation, if necessary, a group of plaintiffs in those other three large regions, for an example, would merely have to take the case in chip, literally, the settlement and literally the decision by the Connecticut Supreme Court in 1996, paste it onto a complaint, sign it and file it. And move for what they would call a summary judgment because the law has already been made. The question is, what is the remedy in those areas? The Hartford Settlement certainly provides a good platform to Mm. determine those remedies in the Greater New Haven in the Bridgeport area.
2: Now, John, I understand you grew up in Norwalk. We talked earlier with Jackie about um, how there have been some issues with uh, the neighboring Darien uh, not wanting to uh, help uh, the overcrowded Norwalk by accepting some elementary school students in uh, the Darien public schools. So what? talk more about what can be done to enforce CHEF around the state. You talked about this, the precedence that's already been set.
1: I think what you need is the kind of community group that the uh, Chef O'Neill created with the Chef movement. And of course, Elizabeth Chef and her son Milo have always been the face of that movement. And particularly, Elizabeth Horton Chef has always been the voice of that movement. So you have to start in greater Fairfield County my home county, in creating this group of individuals, multi-racial, multi-economic, in the area. For example, we carefully ticked the plaintiffs in the chef case that represented urban and suburban parents. West Hartford represented persons who lived in public housing developments and persons who lived in upper-middle-class neighborhoods. We selected persons who were African-American, persons who were Latinx and Caucasians too. So you need that kind of broad, not only multiracial and ethnic, but multi-geographic over the city and town boundary lines and the school district boundary lines, but to come together and to promote the goals of chefs for quality and integrated education.
2: You mentioned the boundary lines. When we think about that boundary between urban and suburban, this was the cause of school segregation, why many communities are still segregated in our state, uh, John. And so that's an important thing to talk about, this uh, partnership that needs to happen between uh, these uh, neighboring school districts.
1: Hartford was also blessed with that uh, broader multi-district organization that helped run the schools. The name has changed over time. New Haven had a similar kind of plan with a few inter-district arrangements. Fairfield County uh, didn't have any. The Chef case is a landmark for several factors, but the one you just touched on is really critical, and that is the Chef Versus O'Neill case is the only decision that found that the district boundary lines between school districts, which are also contemporaneous with local town and city districts, was the cause of the segregation in the school systems. And since it was the cause of the racial isolation between the urban and suburban districts, it also had to be part of the remedy. And that interdistrict remedy is key. The interdistrict remedy led to the kinds of remedial efforts in the Chef case dealing with the exchange and internet, excuse me, interdistrict choice program in which students in some districts can transfer to go to school in other districts, and in which a number of magnet schools were built along the border lines and in, in and out of respective urban and suburban districts. Mm. That has to start down in Fairfield County too, because there are adjacent configurating districts in which to plan, as I know my old home town area between Westport, even Weston, certainly New Canaan and Darien, probably go too far with Stamford and Greenwich, but Greenwich And Old Greenwich can come out a little bit wider on their border lines.
2: Now, John, we just have a a couple of minutes left, but, you know, part of the conversation that we had with our previous guests is, you know, what happens to the children, the families uh, within these communities uh, um, that may not uh, apply to go to a magnet or an open choice school and the importance of still investing in these communities? what can you share with us from your standpoint?
1: I think again, Hartford is a good example where it created that group of magnet schools around Trinity College open to students from the wider suburban area. They continued up the line with more magnet school students headed towards from Hartford to Bloomfield where Hartford College is located. And that's the kind of planning. And now just going over the bridge a little bit to East Hartford, there are magnet schools being created there too. So it is possible. I've always said this, though. Parents who send their children to private schools take on transporting their children by bus or by car to the school because It's not the transportation. It's what's at the end of the trip to school in the education, and therefore, we should look at finding schools suitable for students' needs in order to promote both integrated and quality education.
2: You're hearing attorney John Britton here, one of the original attorneys involved in the Hartford-Cheffy O'Neill lawsuit. He's now uh, a professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia. It was a pleasure to hear from you, and I just want to mention to our listeners later this month, the UConn School of Law will celebrate John Britton, who used to be a faculty member there. Uh, the event's being called Racial Equity and Education, honoring the achievements of John Britton. We're going to have more details on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. On. Thank you for your time today. And okay, thank you. Today's show, produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow.